If you haven't looked down, we're going to be in the book of Haggai again here this morning. Chapter 2. Thomas Edison was a famous inventor. I'm sure you've heard of him. His most famous invention was the incandescent electric light bulb. And it said that while he was experimenting and trying to find the right filament for this build, that he must have had at least 10,000 failed tries. Edison acknowledged that the work was tedious and very demanding, especially for his workers helping with the experiments. He once recalled saying, before I got through, I tested no fewer than 6,000 vegetable growths and ransacked the world for the most suitable filament material. The electric light has caused me the greatest amount of study and has required the most elaborate experiments. I was never myself discouraged or inclined to be hopeless of success. I cannot say the same for all my associates. One night when he arrived home, he was sharing with his wife uh, some of the failed experiments that day, and at, at that point, as I said, there was almost 10,000 tries, and she responded, aren't you discouraged? And he responded, discouraged? Certainly not. I know 10,000 ways that it didn't work. <laughs> I don't think like Edison uh, all the time in life. Perhaps you don't either. We, we are prone to give up. We are prone to throw in the towel, walk away too soon and easily. Perseverance seems impossible. It's easy to join the gym on January 1st and even go, but it's hard to go back on January 2nd. It's easy to plan a diet. It's hard to follow through. It's easy to get married. In fact, you just go down and get your marriage license, but it's hard to have a marriage. It's easy to start a project. It's hard to finish it. And when our expectations don't line up with the reality, it's easy to throw in the towel and just give up. Many of us find personal change to be incredibly hard and extremely slow. If you were to pause this morning and compare your life today with your life a year ago today, would there be much growth? What about today and five years ago? Are you closer to the Lord today? We may not admit it freely, but our progress towards holiness has been far less than expected or hoped. More areas of our lives that we're unaware of have problems and we have pushed them aside and God keeps pushing them back to the forefront, making it painfully aware of how far short we fall of God's perfect standard. And if we're honest, we've only made small beginnings on the road towards holiness. Most of the time, we successfully hide from the painful realities in our lives. We compartmentalize our lives, at least as men we do this. And, and we can do it well so that we can continue on the day-to-day -day tasks that are necessary, ignoring the greater issues that plague our lives and our relationships. But then a major issue arises and we're forced to take into account what we're thinking and how we're responding to those issues that we've ignored. We're forced to make a realistic assessment of who we are in our deepest self. And we can become overwhelmingly aware of our weakness and failures and begin to ask, is there any way forward? Can I really change? The same can be true for a church. 
but has been exposed for us to consider about how our church acts and reacts to situations in this world and in our body. Is there a great gulf between who we are as a church and what we're called to be? Can a church truly grow spiritually? How how do we become what God has called us to be in his word? And these are questions and many others that take up part of what Haggai here is is considering with God's people, the, the remnant of the Lord, as he calls them. The people had returned from exile in Babylon, and, and they're starting the rebuild of the temple, but then progress halts. And then it restarts after repentance, but yet it's still slow. And it seems, from what Haggai says in chapter 2, that they're fixated on on the past glories of the old temple, discouraged at looking at the present situation. See, Solomon's temple was beautiful. This one, not so much. Would they ever finish the building process? Would they they have enough funds to complete it? And what good would it bring when it was finalized? Would this remnant of a people really change and be transformed into a holy nation for God's purposes? Well, the word of the Lord came to Haggai to answer these questions. So if you haven't already, turn in your copy of God's word to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. It's near the end of the Old Testament. Just so you know, it's okay to look at the table of contents. It's not a sin. Don't ever be ashamed if you're looking for a book in the Bible to look at the table of contents. You can do that. If you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 743. I want you to have the Bible open, so whether you're looking with a word that you brought or your phone, have it open there and follow with me as I look at Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, in the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who was left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with the glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Would you join me as I pray? Thank you, Father, for bringing us together this morning. And I beg you that my words would be in symphony with your word. If there's anything, anything I say that hinders people from following you, I ask that you would cause them not to hear it or dwell on it, that they would hear from you in your word, and that you would be glorified in our midst here this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
This morning, there's two points to the outline. If you received a bulletin, first is the problem of gazing backwards. When we come back to the story here in Haggai, it's been almost a month since the beginning of the rebuild of the temple. October 17th, 520 B.C. is what our calendars would state. This is the second time of the word of the Lord comes. It says there in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. The 21st day of the seventh month was near the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the last and greatest of the three annual feasts of Israel. And it was during this same feast over four centuries earlier that Solomon dedicated the first temple. And you can read about that in 1 Kings 8. And this feast would have brought the largest group together, a, a prime time for the Lord to call again through his servant Haggai. Remember, friends, that throughout the Bible, we learn nothing happens without God speaking. God has to speak. His word brings life. We see at the very beginning of the Bible, all the way through, it's consistent throughout the Bible, God's word brings life. And so he says there in verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, and he's going to proceed on. This, this group is gathered, the governor, the high priest, the remnant of the people, but this isn't a time for an inspirational word. No, this, is, this feast was an opportunity to teach again. You see, this feast in, in particular served the people as a time remembering the incredible work and works of their God in the past, especially during the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites before they were given entrance into the promised land. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, the people were called to live for seven days outside of their houses in shelters that were made from interwoven tree branches, reliving their wilderness experience. And if you want to read more about that, it's Leviticus 23. Or if you're in the Bible reading plan, you'll get to it this week. But you've got to put yourself in their position and see how incredibly wise our God is with his people. He is a brilliant teacher. The remnant was only 16 years removed from their exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It was fresh on their minds. It was their second exodus from the land, and now they're back. And the goal of having these feasts on their calendar is to push their minds off themselves and on to God. And how frequently do we, need, do we need these reminders in our lives? This is one of the many reasons why coming to church each week is necessary, friends. Because we need these reminders in our lives. We need to be reminded of all that Christ has done for us. And for these people, the picture of being strangers and aliens in an unwelcoming world and being given the land of promise to Abraham was not simply something we recalled from the dim, dusty pages of history. It was, it was the story of their lives. And they knew about the days of the conquest into the land of Joshua. They'd heard about the dedication of the first temple under Solomon. And I'm sure they could recall all the good times in, in the history of Israel, but their present situation was depressingly mundane compared to the glory of their forefathers and the mighty acts of God in their history. And they're, they're gazing backwards here, but they're doing it wrong. And so God asked them three questions here in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Who, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And these people, I'm sure, staring at the rubble of what is, is not happening quite yet of the new temple, and they're discouraged at the lack of progress. 
We saw at the end of chapter 1, they repented of their dereliction of God and quickly began to rebuild the temple. But now, just a month after the work began, they're discouraged again. Lack of motivation, lack of funds, lack of vision for the task at hand. They, They seem depressed at the work that was before them. Solomon's temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C., 66 years earlier. So, so only people roughly 70 years old and older would remember it. And it was a gorgeous temple. Perhaps, though, it was even a little more beautiful in their minds than in real life. You know, all too often as adults, what we remember about our childhood is incredibly embellished. Things are larger than life. Have you ever left your childhood home, moved out, been away for years only to return? Do things look the same? We remember it differently than when it really is in front of us. I remember visiting my childhood home years ago before I was married. And in my mind, the backyard where I played so much was huge. The memories is this huge backyard. It seemed like acres and acres in my mind. I mean, it had to be ginormous because it took me hours to mow it. Days, I'm sure. Just huge. And then I remember walking back there as a college student thinking, that's it? Just tiny. My memory had failed me. It wasn't accurate at all. So God asked the people, where is the former glory that your house had? It wasn't so perfect then. All the memories that you have, how it felt, what it seemed to be, isn't true any longer. And so he asked the second one, so how do you see it now? It's not the same. It's it's far from equaling the impressiveness of Solomon's temple. No one, including Haggai, was going to argue with that now. Really a big dust heap of broken dreams and shattered hopes. The high aspirations, the incredible expectations they had at the beginning of the temple were now gone, evaporated. And Ezra shows us the emotion of the people when they began with the foundation. It was a mixed bag, actually. See, Ezra, if you're reading along with Haggai, Ezra is a good commentary of what's going on in the book of Haggai. In Ezra chapter 3, I'll read it. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, the cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Quote, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. I'm sure the memory of that day was cemented in their minds. But for some, it wasn't right. Old men who had seen the first temple were weeping when they saw the foundation being built for this new temple. It seems they were discouraged. 
but shouts for joy that drowned out the cries of disbelief. There will always be those that stumble over new growth. They will strain their necks to look backwards, gazing at what once was, never truly being able to see what might become. Asking the question, why are we doing this? Is this really necessary? Is this really going to be better? Matthew Henry, and he's always good because he kind of gets to the point, but Matthew Henry in his commentary says, Though our gracious God is pleased with us if we do in sincerity as well as we can in his service, yet our proud hearts will scarcely let us be pleased with ourselves unless we do as well as others whose abilities far exceed ours. And it is sometimes the fault of old people to discourage the services of the present age by crying up too much the performances and attainments of the former age with which others should be provoked to emulation but not exposed to contempt. Say not thou that the former days are better than these, but thank God that there are any good in these, bad as they are. And this will always be challenging for people because some never want things to change. They simply don't want the new way because they're convinced the old way is better. And from sincere hearts who gave their energy and their money for ministry long ago, it seems now to be replaced by new things, and they're bothered. Whether it's a new building or even more humbling way of new ministry. In all the years of ministry, I've heard all sorts of comments. You know, when I was a kid, I want to start at 6 p.m. Why are we doing it at 6.15? Six is better. Trust me, I've sat in meetings where arguments went for hours. When I was a kid, we had the service this way. And it seemed fine. Why are we doing it that way? And in reflecting, it's not that we shouldn't reflect on how we did ministry back then. In fact, in many ways, it's probably good to consider it. But when it causes our hearts to not invest in ministry now, it's not healthy. It's not glorifying to God then. In Haggai's theology, the two buildings were but different manifestations of one, the same temple. But not so with these men. See, nothing could replace Solomon's temple. Nothing would be as as majestic as his temple, so don't bother trying to build a new one. I wonder, I have no biblical warrant, but I, I wonder, I really do, when the adversaries came and stopped the building process of the temple, were these old men happy? Did they pause and praise for the opposition? See, this whole building process for the people here in Haggai's time was, was going to draw out what was really happening in the hearts of the people. Were they going to obey the Lord even though it would replace what they loved at one point? Were they going to sacrificially give even though it wasn't going to be their idea? It wasn't going to be their baby. It was someone's altogether. Could they get behind it? Could they set aside their pride and step up and serve in this process? I wonder if the same temptation for us here in ministry at EBC. I recognize there's some of you who've been here for a long time. You've seen lots of ministry happen on this campus, and I'm sure things look different now than they did years ago. 
does new growth bring joy to your heart or do you tend to respond like these men here in the book of Ezra? Perhaps maybe a little both. Are you thankful for spiritual growth in the church, even if it changes the dynamic that you've been accustomed to? If we're all honest, growth brings changes that we're not already eager to embrace. But how can we learn together to wait on the Lord and obey and serve Him? I believe by continuing to submit ourselves to the Word is the first step. I pray that as a church we will learn to be satisfied in God alone and not in the things that support us or give us glory. And the people here have been charged. He, he, he continues. He, he charges them in the process. In fact, he gives them three commands in verses 4 and 5. He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, for when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Did you catch those three commands there? Be strong, work, and fear not. First, be strong. That echoes Moses' words to Israel and, and Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 31 when he's commanding them to enter the land. And it's repeated again to Joshua, again at the beginning of his book that bears his name in Joshua 1.6. And the tendency for us as humans is to pull back, to shudder when opposition comes. Moses had this issue. Joshua had this issue. David, in fact, gave the same charge to Solomon during the temple building process in 1 Chronicles 28. He says, then David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid, do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not forsake you or leave you until all the work of your service for the house of the Lord is finished. And we still have the same tendency when we no obedience to God's word, and then we're faced with opposition to, to then flinch or pull back. And friends, it's, it's not humble to be hesitant where God is plain and clear. We be strong and follow him. We press in to obedience to the Lord. The second command is that they're to work. They needed to work, not, not sit back and wait. Their inactivity was not serving them or the Lord. They need to remember who the Lord was and get to work. But, but there's, there's five words following as the power behind their work. He says, work, for I am with you. And their obedience for the Lord in rebuilding the temple wasn't going to be accomplished simply because they're going to put their nose to the grindstone. Well, the Lord had to be there in the midst of it. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it in labor Build it in labor, excuse me, build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And God's plan for them was not simply a matter of sanctified gritting the teeth. The people are to be strong and set out to work, not simply because God commanded them to, but also because the Lord had committed himself to be there with them. God's favor already rested on them. They didn't need to ask for it. God was with them and their work would be accomplished because of him. Pastor Micah Fries wrote, transformed hearts lead to transformed hands, and transformed hands do God's work. And friends, there are so many reasons why 
You'll be blessed by following the Lord, but none is more significant than the promise that the Lord will be with you. He'll be with you. The third command is that they're to not fear. To fear not. There in verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The covenant made is a Hebrew idiom made of combining the verb cut with the noun covenant. Again, drawing attention to continuity of God's activity with Israel. The Lord will be faithful to his people. His faithfulness in the past and, and present is the foundation for future encouragement when struggle comes into their lives. It's, it's not the building. It would, it would not be the temple in all its glory. It's the Lord's presence, the Spirit remaining in their midst. That's what they needed. And the understanding of God's presence with his people is one theological center of the Bible. From beginning to end, God would never leave his people. He would supply all they needed, and they needed to trust him. As Zechariah 4, 6 says, Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And with the presence of God's spirit, there was no need for the people to fear that their work would be in vain. God would accomplish what was needed through his people, and he would supply all that was needed to accomplish it. It's quoted in the book, The Hiding Place. The fearful six-year-old Corey Tenboom was talking with her father. And this is what she writes. Father sat down on the edge of the narrow bed. Says, Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? And she sniffled a few times, considering the thought. Why, just before we get on the train. He said, exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need his strength. So don't run ahead of him. Friends, don't run ahead of the Lord. He will provide what you need. As you serve him, as you serve this body, as you serve your family, and I pray that the Lord would bless our church family, that He would increase our ministry here that people would grow in their walk with the Lord. That we would grow in our love for one another. And that more people would come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of our presence in this community. And so we need to trust in Him. Even when we're discouraged at the lack of spiritual growth. And we don't run ahead of the Lord. We wait on him to supply because he'll give it at the right time. And I know the same for some of you here in your family. Some of you are in quite a quandary right now with your family and extended family. Trust the Lord. Wait upon him. Be strong in his word. Don't neglect your time in the word and prayer. Keep on working on your spiritual life, looking to apply what you learn in the word. And friends, don't fear. God is with you, Christian. He's living inside of you. So don't fear. Don't pull back and throw in the towel. Press on. Be strong. Work for the Lord and fear not. These commands are 
necessary for the people, but friends, they're necessary for us in the Christian life. That's my first point. My second and last point is the need for animated faith. He says there in verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasuries, treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God will get all the glory. All of it. He deserves it. Every last drop of it. And God was going to continue to work in and through his people here. And they needed to trust the Lord. They needed to remember the promises that God had made to them all those years ago. And God is sovereign. We see this clearly in these verses. The Lord of hosts, the Lord over the armies of heaven, he alone is in control over everything. And he says, he will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And and maybe shaking referred to the instability of the kingdom of Persia that was happening then, but, but more convincingly, I believe it points us forward to the future. The book of Hebrews quotes this verse in chapters 12, Chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, it says, At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. I believe Haggai here is prophesying about something that he could only slightly grasp the second coming of Jesus Christ. The blessings promised by the Old Testament prophets often seem to merge into the final blessing that we experience in Christ and that we will experience the new heavens and new earth. Even though we can't fully grasp it at the moment, the hope of the nation would come in Jesus Christ and the final return of the King is what we look forward to. And with the future promise, they needed to keep working and keep trusting in the Lord. Even when they didn't have the resources, And Haggai tells them that the Lord owns it all and that he will provide. And if you remember in chapter 1, their prior disobedience to God's word brought about a drought on their crops. And now the Lord is promising provision. And how can he promise this? Well, he owns it all. He says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And God can and will use anyone that he desires to fulfill his plans. It says in Ezra chapter 6, verse 8, about this. He says, Moreover, I will make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. See, not only would God provide the resources, he would do it without costing the Israelites anything at all. They were simply called to be obedient, and God would do the rest. He would supply all that they need. And then in verse 9, he says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. See, God promises that the final glory will be greater than the first. And I believe this is a messianic promise. It's a promise of Jesus coming. The temple to be built in Haggai's day was only a picture of God's presence because eventually he would come and dwell with his people. 
In Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, meaning I'm here. Jesus knew exactly why he had come. And he would say in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. That's why he came as the temple. He came to die for the sins of all who would repent and trust in him alone. And God also promises them then peace in verse 9. He says, in this place I will give them peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And this peace included all the benefits that you could ever want when you serve the Lord instead of serving yourself. You see, they worked in their houses and they got a little nicer house. But it didn't improve their lives. As they repented and turned their lives toward God and his will, God blessed them with peace. Not just prosperity, they needed more. They needed forgiveness of sins and peace with God. This is what they truly needed. And this is what the Bible teaches to my non-Christian friends here. I want to be clear this morning about what the Bible and Christianity teaches. There is one God who made us, and we have sinned against him. We have done what we have wanted rather than what he has told us to do. We have rebelled against him, and so he is rightly committed to punishing us as our sins deserve. But in his great mercy, he came in Christ, fully God, fully man, and lived a perfect life with no punishment for his own to bear. And yet Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And he rose to new life and offers us new life as well, which brings peace if we will turn from our sins of trusting ourselves and turn to trust in him alone. And we can lay hold of this peace today when we forsake our lives, our self-fulfilling lives, and lay hold of him through faith. And I pray that you would turn today, friends. That you would turn from your sin of trusting yourself and turn in Jesus and trust in him alone. My Christian friends, did you catch the gospel there? You know, I've said this a lot. I have kids repeating it to me. But even as I share it, I'm doing it so that you can learn how to do it yourself. God, man, Christ responds. As the outline that we need to share this glorious gospel with those that we come in contact with. See, God promises a wonderful thing to his people here. That he would fill his house with glory. How does that translate into our lives? God's goal for your life isn't merely to transform your marriage or to change your circumstances or to grow our church. Rather, he wants our lives and your marriage and our church to act as a display cabinet for his glory and his grace. We are meant to live as billboards to God's glory and grace. That's why God doesn't instantly sanctify us when we become Christians. That's why he doesn't just zap us up to heaven when he saves us. He leaves us here to grow us so that his glory will be made more evident by his work in our lives. When we are weak, he is strong. And who gets the glory? He does. 
His grace is made more evident by his continuing work in our lives, by the purging of sin and repentant lives living before him. This truth from God's word cuts against us, though. Because if we're honest, we want an easier life. We want a series of wonderful joys that possibly result in a little glory for us. Can I get a little glory here and there? We want his strength to be made perfect in our strength rather than to be made perfect in our weakness. We want his grace to be given to others through us, but we don't want to be seen needing that same grace in our lives every day. We don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to be seen as needing anything. We want to be seen as strong. And we want our church to be seen as the triumphs of the book of Joshua rather than the chaos in the days of Judges so that we can feel good about ourselves. We want the mountaintop experience all the time and we never want the valley. But the only way that God will get his glory is if we rely on him and not ourselves. By submitting all of our life to him. All of it. Every last drop of our life. And asking for his grace to work. Being willing to confess sin and to repent of it, to turn away from it, to follow him. Be willing to ask each other for help. One of the greatest ways you can serve me is to pray for me. That I would have grace to follow Jesus Christ. One of the best ways you can serve one another in this church family is to pray for one another. To get to know people face to face and to ask them, how can I pray for you? You're meant to do it. To follow through and do it. To pray for this church. To go through your church directory on a weekly basis praying for people. That God would continue to supply grace to them. Week in and week out, we, we come and, and we don't realize what it took for people just to get out of bed to come this morning to worship. We're surrounded by people that are facing all sorts of different discouragements. That's why the church is vital to our life. I don't talk about church membership, friends, because I want a big, long roll of church membership. You know what a big long roll means? It means a longer roll that as a shepherd that I care for. So I want it smaller. I say that sarcastically. It's more responsibility for us. So I, I don't talk about it from that vantage point. I talk about membership because it means we, we've covenanted with one another. We care for one another. We show that. We've committed to one another, not to a building, not to me, to one another that will encourage one another, will pray for one another, that will love one another, that will walk with one another, and when there's sin in each other's lives, we'll call it out carefully 
and lovingly. Because we want to see one another grow up in Jesus Christ. That's what the church is for. That's what our church should be for. You know, as I wrap things up, God didn't need their hard work or their ingenuity. God would provide all that they needed. And he calls them to trust in him, to have faith. What is faith? What is faith that we're called to employ? Is it an optimistic outlook on things? Is faith just simply a few steps that we take in the dark? Real faith, animated faith, is a confident belief in things not yet seen. Faith is not just some whimsical thought, some magical steps in the dark. It's not crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Faith, biblical faith, is set on reasoned, careful, deliberate thought on God and his promises that he gives us in his word. Biblical faith is not simply believing in God. Lots of people believe in God. Satan believes in God. The demons believe in God. The biblical faith is believing God. Taking God at his word. Living in obedience to his word. No matter what it will cost you for your life. That's biblical faith. And how do we become more steady in our obedience to God? Friends, do you want to be a persevering Christian, a stronger Christian, an encouraged, more courageous Christian? Then you have to grow your faith. And faith grows in the proportion to the expansion of the object of our faith. And the object of your faith, if you're a Christian here this morning, is Jesus Christ. And so if your faith is weak this morning, friends, it's because you don't know the object of your faith well enough. But Jesus will become bigger when your understanding of him grows and your faith in him will grow stronger and your trust in him will increase and your obedience to his word will come as you know and love Jesus more. And how does that happen? By plunging yourself in the faith-growing Word of God. You have to read the Word, friends. You have to love the Word, to soak it up, to rehearse the Word, to be in the Word. That's the only way your faith will grow. That's why it's vital for us to study the Word and even study the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament is not just filler for our Bibles. It's part of a bigger story that God is telling us. Not every story is about Jesus, but every story should point to Jesus in some way. And so when we're reading the book of Exodus, and then we read the book of Leviticus, and we see how this setting the stage for a greater sacrifice in the cross to take away our sin. It's setting up our hearts to see our need for Jesus. 
How can you not see Jesus in the sacrificial system? How can we not see Jesus in this book as the people look forward to that greater temple? So don't get caught up in a system. Get caught up in the Word of God. See, one illustration that I heard this week from Tim Keller, who got it from another person, is in watching a movie called The Sixth Sense. Anyone heard of that movie? It came out in 1999, so that made me feel old this week. You can only see this movie twice because it's not worth watching anymore. Because when you watch it for the first time, you get to the end and it's shocking. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but he's dead. (laughs) Shocking. When you watch it, then the second time, you just have to at that point. You get to the end, you're like, I didn't see that. I need to go back. And you watch the second time, and you're processing everything that happens in that movie through the understanding of what you knew what happened at the end. And you know he's dead. So you're watching with new eyes, and it becomes a whole different movie, but then you don't need to watch it a third time. Now apply that to the Bible. You know, it's the same with Star Wars, right? I didn't know this, but you know, when you watch Star Wars at the end, Darth Vader says, I am your... A few of you have seen it, huh? I am your father, and you're like, what? And you go back and you start watching it. Apparently, I didn't know this, that's not what he intended. It's like he came up with it by the third movie. And, but it's this understanding of like, okay, and now that I know the end, I'm going to go back and, and, and understand the whole. And so when you read the New Testament and you find out Jesus wins, that he is that sacrifice on the cross, you go back into the Old Testament and start reading it with that lens. It's impossible not to see where the story is going. It's all headed to Jesus Christ. All of it. That's where the Bible's pointing. You know, I have one last quote, and then I'll end here. And it's from a children's Bible, okay? The Jesus Storybook Bible. It says right at the beginning, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. And they make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. And they get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it is true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. 
So friends, reading the Bible, all of it, strengthens your resolve and trust in Christ. Because you see him, it grows your faith. Because you, you know what happens at the end. You know who the conqueror is, it's Jesus Christ. The bad guys lose, the good guys win, right? And he's always the one, he's the rescuer planned all those years earlier. God knew what he was doing. And reading the Bible this way animates your faith. It, it brings it alive to trust in him more. And I pray, friends, that we will see and savor Jesus Christ more this week as we serve him and read of him in the word. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word, that we have easy access to it. God, we live in a country where we can so readily get a copy of your word, and yet we can so easily neglect it. Help us, Father, to, to love your word. Help us to dive into your word, to read it, to understand it, to ask questions of it. Help us to not only read it for ourselves, but help us to read it with one another. I pray that the families that are represented here this morning would spend time in your word this week. That their discussions over life and things that are necessary and important would happen, yet at the same time they wouldn't dominate our conversations this week. I pray that you would dominate our conversations this week of who you are and what you've done. Help us to revel in the gospel this week. That you saved us. Wretched sinners. We don't need the gospel. We couldn't attain the gospel, as I really should say. We needed you. We know we couldn't have done it on our own. We needed you to come rescue us. Help us to rem remind ourselves and our families and our friends this week of this glorious truth. And I pray that you give us opportunity to share it with others. And as we're reading the word, even in Leviticus, that we're able to talk about it with others, with our neighbors, to talk about what we're learning, how we're growing in our faith in you, how we know the end of the story. Give us courage to do that. Help us to be strong. Father, we thank you. I thank you for this church. You've always been faithful to us. May we never forget it. It may be honored and glorified in us. For I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.